Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Lee Drutman, author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. This was recently published by Oxford University Press, and it is a really fascinating discussion of options. Options. You say we have options, Lee, um, for uh, more party activity in the United States and how this potentially can break through some of our current impasses. Um, But first, I'd like to welcome Lee Drutman to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Lee. Hi, Lily. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, about me. So I am a senior fellow in the political reform program at the New America Think Tank in Washington, D.C., uh, which is a great place to be to do public-oriented scholarship. Uh, I did a PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, this is my second book. Uh, my previous book was The Business of America is Lobbying, which is somewhere in the new books in political science archives, if folks want to listen to that interview as well. Um, and how did you come to this project on essentially how we're going to get out of our current impact? Well, th- this hyperpartisanship is really bad, huh? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I was looking around for what might be uh, a, way, a way to get out of it. And you know, I started looking at the history and I, how we got here. And I then started looking around the world and, and really digging into comparative politics research. And uh, it seemed to me that maybe the, the cause of so much of this hyperpartisanship uh, was that we have just two parties and they are equally balanced at a national level, competing for for uh, that constant elusive majority. Uh, and they're deeply divided by identity, by geography, by culture. Uh, and uh, th- this is really an unsustainable situation. It doesn't work with our political institutions, which demand broad compromise. Uh, doesn't work with our minds, which are very prone to us against them thinking. And it's really not not the norm among advanced democracies to have just two parties. The U.S. is a is a strange country. Uh, most countries are proportional multi party democracies, and while certainly they they have their problems, uh, they don't have this binary hyperpartisanship that's tearing the country in half and making it impossible to do almost anything in in Washington. And so, a couple you know a couple sort of legs into that. The, the current state, you talk about the fact that this is a kind of unique situation for the United States in a comparative context. And as political scientists, we look often at different governmental systems and different party structures. Can you talk a little bit about that, the comparison between what we have in the United States and what most other democracies have in terms of the party functions? Yeah, well, most other uh, democracies have multi-party systems. Uh, 
uh, as a, usually as a result of, of proportional electoral systems, although the UK has sort of a two and a half party system with similar parties, so does Canada. Um, you know, I, I think parties in the US are, are very strange by uh, comparative standards because they are just these very broad, uh, big tent parties that are that are quite weak. They're quite weak, I think, partially because of of primaries, which deprive parties of control over their nominees, but also because they they have to be these very broad, sprawling parties in, in order to uh, appeal to enough groups and voters in order to win elections, uh, which which makes them hard to steer. Uh, smaller parties can be can be stronger. So I think that you know under, understanding. How the U.S. is different really helps us to understand what the range of possible options might be. Uh, you know, I, I do think that there is something unique about this current period and probably for the last decade is that we we've actually had two genuine parties and that that are truly distinct at the national level and have no overlap. I mean, for a long time, the critique of of the American party system uh, came from political science for for a very long time was that the parties were incoherent. They didn't stand for anything. They were these these loose jumbles of state and local parties that at the national level had no programmatic consistency, uh, didn't offer clear alternatives to the voters. And you know, I think there's certainly something to, valuable about having clear choices. But the problem is now we have choices that are so clear uh, and so existential that it's driving us all insane. And and so in that in that context, can you talk a little bit about Um, that assessment that we have these two parties. And this has kind of been the case just not that long in terms of, as you say, there's no overlap that the the sort of sorting out of who is in which party has made the parties themselves more clearly distinct. Yeah. So, again, for, for most of our political history, the national parties didn't really do anything more than just nominate presidential candidates every four years. Politics was really about state and local parties. Now, politics began to nationalize in the '60s, and in, in the in reaction to the civil rights uh, revolution. And you know, then, for a while, I would say we had something like a four-party system with uh, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. Uh, a lot of those liberal Democrats, uh, or sorry, a lot of the liberal Republicans came from New England. Uh, a lot of the conservative Democrats came from the South. And you know, as the parties drew shar- sharper distinctions at a national level, it, voters cared more and more about which party was in control of Congress. And it became harder for voters in New England to support Republicans, even if they were liberal Republicans, because they saw the Republican Party as much more culturally conservative. And in a winner-take-all system of single-member districts, uh, once your party falls below 40% or so, uh, it's really hard to sustain a party operation. So over the last several decades, you've seen the Republican Party as a as a as a party really retreat from New England and coastal areas and cities uh, where it once used to be somewhat competitive. And you've seen the Democratic Party retreat from a lot of parts of the South and, and a lot of parts of rural and exurban America. And so what you have now is a party system where the parties really only operate uh, in areas where they are uh, dominant, but even there, they don't really have much of an operation. Um, and they, you know, mostly, you know, every election hinges on a handful of swing states, which means that most voters in the country are, are treated as irrelevant by the parties, except when it comes to primaries. 
Uh, and it's just a, it's just a really, when, when you think about the idea of democracy and that, that the vote of the people matters, we have a system that really doesn't match much of what we, we think of as an ideal for how democracy should work. Uh, it's, it's very strange, actually, when you, when you stop and, and think about it uh, and get out of the water that you're swimming in. So in this question, as you say, it's sort of, do we actually have democracy given how it sort of functions and, and whose vote really matters? I live in Wisconsin, so my vote matters your, a little bit more. Your than, vote matters, yeah. Uh, <laughs> than if I lived in California or Texas, perhaps, or Wyoming. Um, and I and I talk to my students about this on a regular basis. But you also have this discussion within the book itself as well with regard to the original prospect for this system. And there's been a lot of discussion about that in the last couple of weeks as well, what the framers' intentions were. There are always questions about what the framers' intentions were as if we could read their minds. Um, and we can't read the Federalist Papers. Um, <laughs> and and if they were all of one mind, which Exactly, they, which they is, were. you know, the, then, and that is also the case, of course. So in terms of having this this kind of perhaps not fully functioning democracy in terms of parties, what is the, what is the overlay with regard to the system as designed as well? Well, uh, so, I mean, when, when I think of the design of the system, I, I do think a lot about James Madison, who you know, was really the intellectual architect. Uh, and, you know, Madison, as well as many of the other framers and founders, uh, were, were really afraid of, of political parties forming. Uh, and so they, they set up a, a series of institutions that were designed to make it really hard for political parties as, as majority parties to form you know, the bicameral legislature, separation of powers, federalism. And, and I say majority parties because that's what they had in mind when they, they thought about parties, that they thought that the greatest danger would be if there was a, a dominant majority party, uh, because what would happen, they feared, was that that dominant majority party would use its power to oppress a minority party. And then the minority party would say, well, this system's not legitimate. Uh, and then you basically see a breakdown of democracy. Now, Matt, Madison's Federalist Number 10, you know, it's a, it's a classic essay. Every political scientist knows it. Uh, you know, but but the, the vision is, you know, the, the key to long-term stability of, of self-governance is a system in which no one faction feels like it can be permanently dominant and no one faction feels like it's going to be permanently dominated and that you have coalitions that that come and go and are responsive to a, to a broad consensus majority. Uh, and, you know, to me, that's much closer to a vision of multi-party democracy than narrow majoritarian democracy, which is what we sort of have, except we sort of don't have it because we have all this separation of powers. So we kind of have the worst of both worlds. We have a, a an electoral system that forces us towards narrow majoritarianism and, you know, or we have the worst combination, an electoral system that forces us towards narrow majoritarianism and an institutional governing structure that forces us towards broad compromise. So uh, to me, it's easier and also more desirable to change the electoral system that would push us towards more multi-partyism, which would encourage more coalition formation more compromise oriented, which works with our system rather than against us. I mean, uh, some folks might say, well, we ought to have more of a Westminster style British system. I don't think that's working out so well. And that, that it, it, 
leads to even more minoritarian gover- governance, I fear, because you look at the conservatives who are governing uh, in Britain now, and they, they only won with 43% of the vote in the last election. And and so you talk about how we're going to get out of this quagmire. And Yeah, so let's get out of the quagmire. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. Quagmire. <laughs> who who um, wants... And- <laughs> And and what you're talking about is that we have to actually bust out of the of the party structure as it currently exists. And so your book talks about how we're going to do that. So what are the steps? How are we going to make this happen? Lee? Well, well, the, as as most political scientists know, the the number of parties is is a function of the electoral system. And we have uh, first passed the post. Uh, electoral system, which tends towards just two parties, particularly with presidentialism on top of it. Uh, and if we want to expand the number of parties, break the zero-sum binary contest for for narrow but elusive majoritarian control, uh, we need to change the way we vote. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of ranked choice voting, particularly with multi-member districts, which is a form of proportional representation used in Ireland, uh, used for the Australian Senate. I do that for our House. For the Senate, uh, you know, I think we're stuck with with single winner elections, but I'd add ranked choice voting. I'd also increase the size of the House to add more diversity to the House and get rid of primaries, which I think would also encourage more parties competing in the in the general election. And there are other reasons why I think primary elections are not so great. Um, you know, I, I think those things together uh, would would move us in the direction. Ultimately, I'd like to see a constitutional amendment to replace the electoral college with a national popular vote that is a, either a two-round system or a ranked choice voting system, which I think would, would also make a lot of sense. You know, but, but I think there's, there's nothing in our constitution that says we have to have just two parties. Uh, you know, the, the elections clause says Congress can decide how to, how to run elections. And I, I think had the framers uh, acknowledged that political parties are, are essential vehicles uh, and institutions for modern mass democracy to function, and had they understood the ways in which the electoral rules that they imported unthinkingly from from Britain uh, contribute to just two parties, they might have thought a little bit more about how to how to institutionalize more multi party party democracy. Now, of course, uh, proportional representation wouldn't really be developed in until the the nineteenth century and wouldn't be implemented in a, in a widespread way until the the early twentieth century. Uh, but you know, the, the the framers were were great consumers of political science. And you know, I think if they had looked at the political science literature, uh, you know, of of today, they would have come to very different conclusions. And I also note that when the U.S. sets up to helps advise on democracies uh, around the world, uh, nobody ever recommends our cockamamie system of governance. I always note that to my students when we're studying the electoral college, and note that nobody else has one. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, and so in this context, can you talk a little bit about ranked choice voting? About 20 years ago, I was living in Minnesota and we were discussing it at the time as a form of electoral reform in Minnesota in particular, because we had more viability with regard to multi-parties in the state. Jesse Ventura had been elected governor. Um, and you talk about this at some length in the book. Can you explain about how this would potentially break up the doom loop. Well, the the reason that third parties and fourth parties don't get any traction in our system is that they're treated as spoilers. Now, ranked choice voting takes away that that spoiler uh, problem, 
because you can vote for a third party or you know, or a, you know a candidate that doesn't seem like it's going to get uh, he or she is going to get the majority of the votes, and then you can indicate a backup second choice, backup third choice preference, so that your vote is going to be counted uh, no matter what, which then encourages candidates to to run outside of the two major parties and for voters to take those candidates seriously and for those candidates to really introduce new ideas in into the political debate stream, uh, particularly if you add multi-member districts rather than single-member districts, which we have now for Congress, uh, that, that gives you a form of proportional representation that would translate into greater representation for multiple parties. And you know, I think that would be incredibly healthy because, one, it would reflect the broad diversity of this country better. Uh, America is a very broad, diverse, pluralistic country. And to, to shoehorn uh, everybody into one of those two parties, uh, I think, leaves an awful lot of voters feeling unrepresented and unhappy. Uh, the U.S. has among the lowest turnout rates of any advanced democracy. And you know, th- there's a good reason that proportional multi-party democracies have a higher turnout rate. And it's because voters uh, are more likely to, to find a candidate in a party that they feel represents them. And those candidates and those parties are more likely to reach out to voters uh, because in a proportional system, every vote matters. You don't have to live in Wisconsin, uh, as lovely as it is, uh, in order for your, your vote to count in, in, a, in a Senate or a presidential election. And you don't have to live in a swing district in order for your vote to count in a House election. And, and so in terms of solving some of the, the sort of binary situation, obviously ranked choice voting, as you say, would allow for more voices and more perspectives to be sort of taken into consideration by voters. Um, and, and when you go to vote, obviously you get to make more than one choice, which is really where I think the the sort of understanding of how diverse and pluralistic the country is, which also goes to the argument that Madison makes in Federalist 10 and 51, um, that he expected that just the geography would lead us to be diverse in our politics. Um, would the ranked choice voting sort of then work in the system better than the current situation that we have? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, we are we are less ge- geographically. We've become more more nationalized than we were in Madison's time. But ethnically, culturally, uh, you know, I think we're we're much more diverse. And so, it makes sense to have a voting system that represents the, that diversity, which is you know not necessarily always represented well by states as the unit of of counting, but rather by people. As the unit of counting, and you know, I think I think uh, changes to our electoral system would allow that diversity to be much better represented in our system of government than it is right now. And so the the question of the states as the unit of counting, um, which goes to the electoral college and also goes to the Senate, that that again at the time of the founding they were sort of moving away from the states and the Articles of Confederation. But the states seem to be sort of a, also a difficulty in having a voice, giving voice to many of the voters. Um, is is there parts of your proposal that sort of get at some of these questions of the role of the states? Well, you know, I think there's you know, there's always been a debate about federalism and you know, how much power should the states have versus the federal government. Um, 
you know, certainly the trend has been towards uh, much more power in Washington and, and less power in the states. Uh, and I think that's probably here to stay. Um, you know, but I, I think there are certainly opportunities for 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 more localism, you know, particularly at the city level as cities become larger and more important. Uh, you know, but I think a lot of that, you know, depends on understanding that you know that, that there there is some room for experimentation. And one of the challenges is that, given the high stakes of of every election, uh, you know, the the side in power in Washington wants to use that power when it gets it uh, uh, to, to make it harder for states and cities. So we have this kind of weird fair weather federalism, which the party that's out of power says, oh, we should devolve power to the states and, and, and to the cities. Uh, well, maybe not to the cities, depending on which, which side you're on, uh, cities or the states, depending on which side you're on. Uh, but, you know, then, then that, that, that goes away. So it's, but you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of an, in many ways, it feels like we have we have a, an incoherent system in which it's set up with with states as the units. But so much of the focus has been on national politics because the stakes of national politics have become so high, so emotional, and the states just become proxies for those battles. If the stakes of control in Washington were were less high, if there was more coalitional, compromise oriented politics, I think we would see. More interesting stuff happening at, at the at the state level and at the city level again. And so, one of the other proposals that you suggest is to expand the House of Representatives. Um, how would this, um, besides having more people um, in the House, thus potentially more diversity of perspectives, how would this potentially break up some of this the the sort of binary doom loop? Well, I, I think it works well with moving to multi-member districts with ranked choice voting uh, because it allows for, for more states to have larger districts. And it also, I think, makes it more appealing for incumbent politicians uh, to support expanding the House uh, while, ex- while expanding to larger districts. It makes it more likely for them to keep their seats. Uh, so it makes it more politically possible. I, I also think it's desirable. Uh, you know, the the house is supposed to be uh, the the people's chamber and the representatives are supposed to be close to the people and districts started out at about 30,000 constituents per representative they're now at over 750,000 uh constituents per representative which is the highest uh, among all advanced democracies only india uh has has higher uh, but they they're a much more federal system than we are uh so you know i, I think in order for people to feel close to their government and the government to feel close to their people, we should have a house with that in which members represent a smaller number of constituents. You know, I mean, frankly, I, you know, 700 is, I think, a reasonable compromise. I, I would, I, you know, if it were up to me entirely, I would, I would go more like 1600 or 2000. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's a little too much. So I, I've only, I've settled on, on 700, which is consistent with the Q root law. That predicts the size of the house based on the country's population. And and do you think at that level of the number of people in the house, things would get done? Um, are things getting done now? Now, um, I'm I'm not sure. It's it, it's a function of the number of people. I mean, it's the house has already gotten too big uh, to have that kind of one on one relationship that members have. You know, I think it's it. it I think things can get done. Uh, 
uh, qualitatively, I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes from 435 to, to 700. Things, if you if you vote on things, things can get done. Exactly. Um, and, and so with regard to one of the sort of other points that you make in terms of reforms, you do advocate for a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. And I point this out, you know, it's something that has been advocated since almost the time of the, the Constitution's inception um, because it's a strange construction that has lots of weird parts to it. Um, is there a capacity in the country these days for a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College? It seems to depend on which side of the partisan divide you're on. Well, this is why it's important to break the two-party doom loop. I mean, as long as as long as it's a it's a partisan issue, and and unfortunately, a lot of the de- these democracy reforms that we're talking about in this moment, whether it's making it easier for people to vote, uh, whether it's dealing with gerrymandering and districting, uh, are, are partisan issues uh, because there's one party that benefits from the status quo and one party that would benefit from change, uh, not naming any names, although I think we can figure out living in Wisconsin. Uh, and you know, I, I think that, that creates a real challenge for, for a lot of these, these democracy reforms that, that we're discussing. Uh, now, one of the nice things about uh, changing the the electoral system and blowing up both parties is is that it, it is an equal opportunity to destroyer. So, so both parties will be against it. Uh, so it doesn't benefit one party or the other. But frankly, I think there are a lot of representatives, particularly in Washington, who are sick and tired of of being part of this this partisan trench warfare and working in a in an institution that everyone talks about how miserable it is. So I think it's a, it's a leap to, to think about a, a big democracy reform like this. But on the other hand, it seems like we can't keep going the way that we're going and there's really no way out. Uh, you know, there are some folks who think, Oh, if only Democrats could just win enough seats in, in the house and the Senate and, you know, just, destroy the Republican Party. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think there, there's an enthusiasm now that Democrats might gain the trifecta in, in 2021. But even that is a 50-50 shot, I think. And you know, what, if Trump is gone, suddenly Democrats are going to have a lot less to run against and, and you won't see the same mobilization and enthusiasm for Democrats. There'll be a backlash to whoever the Democrat is in the White House. We know this. We have predictable models that show that, that we have this this is thermostatic so that that doesn't seem a way forward and you know, i don't know are we just going to learn to learn to love each other a little more um i don't know more civility i'm not sure that's that's the right answer either well and the question of course of more civility is what what does more civility look like and how does it happen um yeah. and yeah. and you i mean you're proposing sort of structural and and political reforms that that have you know that be nice to each other. Okay. Um, you know, we say that to my children. Um, <laughs> but, but I had a, a question or a sort of, I would love for you to talk about a little bit how the shift in terms of ranked choice voting and, and, and sort of, um, broader, uh, coalition representation would also change the kind of dynamic around campaigning and, um, and to some degree, politics, because 
in order to get to be second, somebody's second choice or somebody's third choice, somebody's fourth choice even, um, you can't necessarily drive a negative campaign for your for your election. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that itself might bring some of these questions of civility forward? Yeah, well, I think one of the experiences of cities that have adopted ranked choice voting uh, thus far is that they've seen a, a more positive sum campaigning in which candidates are reaching out to more voters who might not be their first, who might not pick them as their first choice, but they're campaigning for second and third choice preferences. And they're they're building coalitions and alliances uh, with candidates who they might otherwise attack. Uh, it, it's notable that uh, when scholars and democracy experts are, are called on to, to think about what voting systems might work in countries that were divided by ethnic civil war, uh, they almost always recommend some form of, of ranked choice preferential voting because it's a way for, for ethnic groups that are pre- have previously been, been at war with each other to, to actually try to reach out and build alliances in order to get elected. Uh, so I think that is a that would be a positive benefit of, of ranked choice voting. Uh, as as a as a form of voting, um, you know, I, I agree with you that civility is you know it's it's a, it's a hand wavy thing. Civility for who, uh, you know, I, I think politics is about conflict uh, because the things that we agree on are the things that we don't have political debate over, right? And there's no they're not political issues. The political issues are the issues where where we don't otherwise agree, and that's fine and that's healthy. Uh, but the challenge is we've got to find a way to resolve those issues. And if everything is cast in this ex- existential good versus evil, uh, no compromise situation, no alliance situation, we, we can't resolve those issues. And so there are cities, and I know the state of Maine have adopted ranked choice voting. Can you talk a little bit about how the places where it has been adopted in the United States how that's going and, and what they're, you know, how they got there also. Well, I, I think it's mostly going well. Cities tend to be happy uh, with ranked choice voting. Uh, so, uh, you know, voters, after doing it once, they say, oh, this was actually simpler than I thought it was going to be. Uh, and, and hey, the campaign was a little less negative this time. Uh you know, how they got there, uh, you know, e- each place has its own story of, of how it got there, you know, but but usually what you'll find is a, so, is a combination of dissatisfaction with the way things are working uh, and and a, a, a real grassroots movement uh, and, and a real campaign of voters saying, you know, look, I want more choices. I don't I, you know, and I want to be able to express the full range of my preferences. And, you know, that that's in the broad history of democracy reform, you know, democracy reform happens you know, when people feel like the status quo is intolerable and social movements build around that. Uh, you know, it, it, it took a long time to get women's suffrage, uh, but, you know, that you there was a real social movement around that it took a long time to get civil rights. There was a real social movement around that. A lot of the progressive reforms, which I, I think are other progressive democracy reforms, which I think are, are uh, you know, are not not necessarily so great. The, the but, you know, kind of mixed bag, uh, you know, referendum and initiative, direct primary, direct election of senators, you know, those all happened in this country. Uh, and there was a big movement that said the, the way the way we're doing business, the way we're running our democracy is not acceptable. We want something that's more inclusive, 
more responsive. And when, when enough folks demand it and politicians eventually realize, oh, actually, the system that we have is kind of sucky. And, you know, I could still get elected in a different system and it might actually be better. Uh, then then you get reform. And, and so in terms of reforming our democracy, this is going to be a sort of piecemeal, potentially a piecemeal undertaking in terms of places adopting ranked choice voting um, or potentially legislation to expand the House of Representatives. Obviously, amendments to the Constitution often are long-term undertakings. Um, so how would you see this unfolding, as you say, in terms of social movements and people getting really, really, really frustrated with um, how things are going in Washington, which seems to be, you know, in a certain sense, the election of Donald Trump was a reflection of that as well. Yeah. And, and the election of Donald Trump was both a reflection of the frustration and a wake-up call to a lot of folks that the, the system that we have maybe isn't so great. And I think one of the things that you've seen in, in polling is that there, there's been a shift in the, in the number of Americans who say that may, maybe our system of government isn't actually the best. Uh, you know, I, I think realistically what you'll see is is more states following the path of Maine and and changing, uh, taking uh, taking changes into their own hands. I think you'll start to see some states experimenting with, with different forms of electoral reform for their own state legislature. Uh, and I think you'll, you'll see more and more energy building around electoral reform as more and more people realize that, that if, if we keep doing what we're doing, uh, we are really running a dangerous risk because fundamentally self-governance democracy depends on a sense that there is a way to productively disagree and then to resolve those disagreements, uh, relies on a shared underlying process that is fair, that is legitimate. Uh, and we are rapidly losing that. I mean, you, you look at the number of people who will not, will probably view whatever happens in the 2020 election as illegitimate. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, the, the way in which the impeachment has gone down. Uh, you know, we are a country in which there are two separate realities for two separate parties. Uh, and that is a very, very dangerous place to be. And I think as the stakes continue to escalate, uh, we will see more and more challenges uh, that you know, at some point, I don't know if we will withstand. So that the, the sort of basis of the democracy itself is is with regard to the question of legitimacy. It's the question of yeah. self-government and sort of trusting yourself and your neighbors um, but also the the folks that you elect and the way that they function in office. Right. Um, and, and, you know, there is this question about how many people are voters. Um, as you know, we have very low turnout and it varies state by state also. Um, that's often um, connected to how how much you think, how valuable and, and, and legitimate you think the government is in your state. Um, as I've, you know, sort of lived in Florida, and I've lived in Minnesota, um, which are often the extremes of some of those questions. Um, so, Lee, this is a very uh, exciting book, um, very hopeful and optimistic. Um, so what are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm thinking about what the next big project is going to be at this point. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in the broad history of democracy reform in the U.S. and how other uh, 
movements and and bursts of democracy reform have have gone. And you know, thinking more broadly about how different movements have reconciled different trade offs uh, of of democracy. And so when when that project is concluded, I hope you will come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it again. All right. I'll, I'll see you in about five years. Okay. Um, I was joined by Lee Drutman today, who's author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. This is published by Oxford University Press. And I'm sure one can pick up a copy of this at the Oxford University Press website, any place else you'd like to give a shout out to. Or wherever you like to buy books, maybe your local independent bookstore, if that exists in your town. Um, That is, of course, an option for many people. Thank you for joining me today, Lee. Pleasure to be with you, Lily.